Well, good evening, everybody. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And um, it's a pleasure to welcome you tonight to the latest in our series, Progress and Its Discontents, in which we're inviting a series of prominent scholars, literary figures, and people active in political life to consider whether there's been a loss of confidence in the idea of <coughs> the possibility of progress um, and whether there's anything that can be done about that. And it's my particular pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker, Dr Sadir Hazara Singh. Um, Sadir has taught for, well, he probably won't be thankful for me saying so, but a quarter of a century, I believe, at Oxford University. And he is, without doubt, one of the world's leading authorities on French politics and history. And I say that not just in the English-speaking world, which he is certainly, but also, I think, in the French-speaking world. And I think his work is marked by a rich, historically informed analysis um, of a series of questions about French politics and French uh, intellectual life. And I, I myself personally um, feel that I've learned a great deal from reading your work. Um, amongst his books, I won't go through all his articles, are works on modern French political traditions, 19th century French political thought, the French Communist Party, um, Napoleon, or rather the tradition around Napoleon, uh, a prize-winning work of his, and another prize-winning work on General de Gaulle, uh, that prize being awarded by the French Senate. And in addition to that, his latest work, which many of you may have come across, is called How the French Think, and it's on that that he's going to draw today. Well, I think for many people in the English-speaking world, French intellectual traditions have long carried a kind of progressive élan. Um, I think such is the hegemony of that idea in some places that I, I recall first going to university in, in, in Australia and looking into the elections in France and being a bit amazed to discover that the left scarcely ever won the elections. Um, in any case, all the more important is it to think about what's happened to the French political tradition and whether it can be revived. And it's about that that Sadir is going to talk tonight. So he's going to speak for about 45 or 50 minutes and then hopefully we'll have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion. So can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Sadir Hazarasin. Thank you very much, Robin, and thank you for that very warm and um, generous introduction. Um, so I would like to thank all of you for um, uh, coming this evening. And uh, I also would like to um, thank uh, Robin in his capacity as the director of the Ralph Miliband Lecture Series for inviting me. It's really a great honor and a great privilege to be here with you in this capacity. I should also say how nice it is for me to be back at the LSC. Uh, my, my father and my brother um, uh, studied here, and I still have very fond memories of coming here in the early 1980s playing five-a-side football with a group of largely Mauritian postgraduate students. And so um, uh, it's, it's very nice to be treading, treading these kind of hallowed paths again. I should also, if I may, pay um, tribute to Ralph Miliband's memory. I still recall the sense of intellectual excitement uh, I had as an undergraduate 
when I encountered his book, particularly his book on the state and capitalist society, and reading with kind of great enthusiasm the kind of polemics between uh, Ralph and uh, Polanzas over over uh, the interpretation of the role of the state. And I was very much on, on Ralph Miliband's side and, and very much not um, on the side of the kind of structuralist interpretation of the state. So I very much, uh, it's, it's a great honor to be here to kind of pay, pay, pay my own tribute to his memory. And if I may, finally, I'd also like to pay tribute to, to Marion Kozak for her hum- all the, her human rights campaigns over the years, and in particular, for her steadfast support for uh, the cause of justice for the Palestinian people. So, on to my subject, which is the pessimistic turn in in French thought. Um, It's no secret, um, French thought has um, become much more uh, negative, much more uh, inward-looking over the past decades. French philosophy, which taught the world to reason, you know, with these sweeping and bold systems like um, rationalism, republicanism, existentialism, uh, positivism, uh, uh, communism, of course, has conspicuously little to offer in in recent decades. And indeed, Saint-Germain-des-Prés, which is the the engine room of the Parisian left uh, intellectual creativity, has now become a kind of haven for high-fashion boutiques, with fading memories of its past uh, uh, literary and intellectual glory. Uh, And I was very struck when I was reading about this in preparing for my book, reading an interview of a a local kind of writer who said uh, rather grimly, with this rather kind of characteristic black humor, and I quote, the time will soon come when we will be reduced to selling little statues of Sartre made in China. (laughs) So things are not looking too good in Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And nowhere is this retrenchment um, more, more poignantly felt, I think, than in the dissipation of the French uh, uh, progressive intellectual heritage. Now, there was a time, wasn't there, when French thought inspired not only the French but not, and not only the Europeans, but also um, the wider world. Um, if you think about the heritage of the French Revolution, um, this was something that spread literally across the world. If you think of the impact of the French Revolution on British political thought and British political practice, in the 19th century, a lot of British progressives, like the Chartists, were directly inspired by the French Revolution. Uh, if you think about the Bolsheviks in Russia, they thought they were, in a sense, reenacting the French Revolution. Such was their identification with the revolution that they thought they were simply carrying out again what the, <coughs> what the Girondins, the Jacobins, had done in the late 18th century. Um, French ideas and symbols were uh, widely equated with self-determination and emancipation from servitude. Um, if you think of... Uh, global examples, the Statue of Liberty, which is uh, uh, the iconic emblem of Americanness. This is designed by the French sculptor Bartholdi. Uh, Poland's national anthem, which has Napoleon in it. Uh, Auguste Comte, the founder of, progressi- uh, uh, of positivism, you know, his motto, order and progress. This is in the banner of uh, the, Brazilian, uh, the Brazilian national flag. More recently, if you think of Franz Fanon and his critique of uh, uh, colonial racism, that comes right out of the the radical French tradition. So there is this long tradition of French thought inspiring uh, uh, critical critical approaches to 
to social and political thought. And indeed, one of the best examples of this, it seems to me, is if we ask the question, how in, in the Western world since the uh, 18th, late 18th century have critical and dissenting traditions of thought been shaped and I think the role of French thought in shaping those traditions of critical and dissenting dissenting thought have been absolutely um, uh, 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 enormous starting with the French Revolution of course but also the work of Rousseau and the radical republican tradition all the way through to the 20th century and the works of people like Sartre, Foucault and Bourdieu. So France, French thought has kind of nourished critical, radical, progressive thought um, for a very long time. And the thing that is very striking about uh, the present moment, of course, is that there's very little of this ideological uh, fertility that we see in evidence in Paris. And so French thinking is no longer the sort of central reference point for progressive thought um, in the world. And I think it's noteworthy, isn't it, that um, none of the recent social revolutions that we have seen since the late 20th century, I'm thinking about the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, um, the challenge to authoritarian regimes in the Arab world, none of these social movements took their cue from, from French thinking or, or in any kind of particular a particular way. And this void, I think, is further reflected in the rather dismal intellectual state of French socialism today, even though we have a socialist president in France. It's not at all clear that France is regarded as a kind of uh, a model for progressive, progressive thinking, either by, either by French socialists themselves or, 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 or by socialists uh, uh, further afield. Indeed, the dominant strand in contemporary French intellectual thought has become much more conservative, um, as I think is, is reflected in the success of right-wing pamphleteers such as Alain Finkelkraut, who's about to be um, uh, installed in the Académie Française um, in a few days, um, and in the bleakness and in the very uh, pessimistic, negative uh, disposition of people who were up till quite recently regarded as the uh, principal uh, uh, thinkers on the left. I'm thinking of someone, for example, like Régis Debray, who uh, uh, a lot of us uh, uh, read with great admiration uh, in the 1970s and 1980s and who represented a kind of strong revolutionary uh, strand uh, in French progressive thought. If you read his latest book, it's really all about how everything that he believed in uh, has collapsed and he's simply now looking forward to a sort of peaceful retirement without any kind of prospect of uh, 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 positive change. And indeed, this triumph of a kind of reactionary and pessimistic thinking was the cover story of the French daily newspaper Libération uh, at the end of last week, last Thursday, I think it was, the, the issue of the 21st of January. And its editor, Laurent Geoffrin, uh, in his editorial, concluded, and I was very struck by this conclusion, because in a way it could have been the subtitle to this lecture, this is Geoffrin's conclusion, without historical optimism, without faith in humanity, Without faith in freedom, the left in France no longer exists. The left in France no longer exists. I mean, that's where we are now today in terms of how progressives think about uh, the state of their own um, political community. So um, we're in a pretty bleak place. Um, what I'd like to do in this lecture, therefore, is to discuss really how, how and why this pessimism has come about.
I'll start in a kind of happier place. I'll start with a kind of description of how French progressivism um, represented this kind of powerful creative tradition, and I'll, I'll, I'll give some examples of how it decisively shaped social and political thought in France. And I'll then, um, as a kind of transition to uh, discussing the, uh, the present dilemmas faced by French thought, I'll also talk about some of the more uh, negative aspects of this progressive tradition, because I think the roots of the situation that the French find themselves in today lie in part in some aspects of this progressive tradition. So there are some aspects of it that I think have contributed to the decline, and I'll explain this a little bit more uh, uh, in, in the talk. And then finally, I'll try... Um, in the last um, 10 minutes or so to try and give some explanations of why this decline has occurred because in a way that's the really important thing that we need to try and understand. What is it that has happened to cause this erosion and this decline? So that's the agenda. So what about um, this, um, this progressive tradition? What can one say about it? How can one summarize it um, uh, uh, reasonably quickly? I think what stands out for me in terms of kind of describing it um, since the late Enlightenment, let's say, what are the kind of characteristic features of this progressive tradition in France, I think what seems to me to be most striking about it is that it produces a certain way of thinking, a certain style of thinking, which has very distinct characteristics. Um, it, it's very much a celebration of the ideal of human perfectibility. Uh, perfectibility is something that is very central to the French progressive tradition, and, and the idea of perfectibility uh, is anchored in the, in the French republican tradition. Um, and you also see um, this tradition uh, 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 celebrating very much the notion of utopia, the notion of uh, the importance of the imagination, um, one of the big slogans of May 68 is l'imagination au pouvoir. And so this notion that politics should not just be about the present or the immediate, but should also be about the production of large, uh, uh, bold, optimistic visions of the future, that seems to me to be a very integral part of, uh, of the French tradition. And I think um, third important element, and, and this is more a kind of sociological feature, of French thought. Ever since the, the High Enlightenment, you have had a tradition of uh, giving the writer, giving the philosopher, giving the man or woman of letters a particularly sacred place, a particularly sacred role um, in society. And I think uh, the, the kind of centrality of intellectuals in France, which is a relatively recent phenomenon, is itself part of a much older and more distinguished tradition in France, which is the tradition of celebrating the role of the writer. The writer is almost seen as a kind of spiritual guide for society, and that's something that you see from the Enlightenment onwards, and which is very much part of this kind of distinctive French tradition. So how does this then translate in practice? Well, one of the interesting things that it, uh, that it produces in terms of uh, a, a sort of language or a style of politics is an emphasis on creativity, an emphasis on innovation, an emphasis on novelty. I mean, I'm, I was very struck when I was doing the research for my book that if you just take almost any period in recent French history. I mean, I take, let's say, the period between the 1950s and the, and the 1980s. You find that the concept of revolution, the concept of innovation, the concept of 
of, of change is something that is applied very sweepingly across the board. Um, you find it in, in politics, in history, in literature, in philosophy, in sociology, in linguistics. Everybody wants to innovate. Everybody wants to do new things. So during this period, you have the nouveau roman, the new novel. Um, uh, you have the nouvelle vague in cinema, you know, Godard, Truffaut, all those people. You have uh, the nouvelle histoire, right? History, history kind of uh, renovates itself during this period. A little later, you have the nouvelle philosophy uh, 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 and the nouvelle and the nouvelle gauche. So every, all, all, all kind of uh, different uh, 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 aspects of kind of artistic and political endeavor call themselves new. And indeed, I was very struck now that. French thought has taken this conservative turn, that even the, new conserv- even the conservatives who are currently uh, dominant in France are called the nouveau Right? They have to be nouveau, to be, to be given the kind of seal of approval. So there is this kind of emphasis on novelty. And I found a really interesting quote by Claude Lévi-Strauss, who is one of the kind of great uh, thinkers of, of the 20th century, arguably the most uh, creative and innovative thinker. He was a, a social anthropologist. And, and he says that this thirst for innovation is something that's kind of inherent in the very idea of knowledge. And, and this is the quote from Lévi-Strauss. He says, the great speculative structures are meant to be broken. There is not one of them that can hope to last for more than a few decades or at most a century. And this is something that strikes me as very French. This idea that every 20 or 30 years you have intellectual revolutions and uh, existing paradigms, existing orthodoxies, existing ways of seeing the, seeing the world are overturned and new, new forms are produced. If you look at the intellectual history of France, as I say, from the Enlightenment up to the late 20th century, you find this kind of constant uh, 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 process of, of renewal and, this, uh, and of rejuvenation. And This uh, attachment to uh, uh, renewal, to to innovation, also manifests itself in another characteristic of French thought, which is a a kind of predilection for grand theorizing. This is also something that strikes me as very French. And and when you look at the progressive tradition in France, you see this kind of extraordinary ambition that French thinkers have had over the last three centuries. uh, starting with Rousseau, for example, whose political philosophy is driven by the goal of regenerating humankind um, through the achievement of republican virtue. Um, you take Auguste Comte, the founder of positivism and the founder of sociology, um, so a very great man indeed. You know, he wrote extensively about astronomy, about physics, about chemistry, uh, about biology, about mathematics, and he devoted his life to elaborating a kind of original uh, scientific system which would herald what he called the definitive stage of human intelligence. Indeed, what I think is the most striking feature of this kind of progressive tradition in this respect is that it aspires to find universal and comprehensive explanations for all phenomena. That's the kind of striking thing about this uh, uh, this progressive tradition. You see it in, in the historians' uh, ambition to produce uh, what, what the annal historians call a total history. It's a wonderful expression, that total history. It means a history that could explain everything. Uh, if you read uh, Sartre's uh, Critique of Dialectical Reason, his ambition is to see whether there is any such thing as truth in humanity. 
right? So not, not a modest ambition, you know, total history, truth in humanity as a whole. Um, Simone de Beauvoir, likewise, uh, you know, what she's doing in The Second Sex is offering a general theory, universal theory, a universal alternative theory to the notion of how we should understand gender, and hence her kind of classic statement, one is not born, but one becomes a woman. And Levi-Strauss does the same thing too in his, in his structuralism. So this, this emphasis on grand theorizing is also something that is very much part of this progressive tradition. When, the, when French thinkers from Rousseau to Lévi-Strauss think about the world, they do not think about the world in, in, uh, in modest ways. They think about it in grand, in sweeping ways, and they produce these wonderful uh, general explanations for how the world is. And that, I think, is a very fundamental part of this progressive tradition. So what are, what are its kind of characteristics, to, 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 to sum up before I move on? A kind of emphasis on, on regeneration, uh, 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 an aspiration to kind of regenerate humanity, uh, an aspiration to find general explanations for how the world is, and of course um, an aspiration to change it, because that is also very much part of this progressive tradition. So that's what we had for a very long time in France, this kind of dominant um, progressive intellectual tradition. And I think to understand uh, how this progressive tradition functioned, one has to understand uh, a slightly wider feature of uh, French thinking, which is that um, French thought, again from the Enlightenment onwards, has uh, a particular fetish for uh, general notions. Um, general accounts, general explanations. So when the French Revolution occurs, you have um, these new ideas that are introduced like popular sovereignty or the, the, the concepts of liberty, equality, fraternity, general, uh, general ways of seeing the world. And I think this is something that is characteristic of uh, a particular French style of thinking. And it was very well summed up by a 19th century essayist called uh, Émile de Montaigu, and this is how he describes the French people. Uh, this is a quote. He says, there is no people among whom abstract ideas have played such a great role. He's speaking about the French. There's no people among whom abstract ideas have played such a great role, whose history is rife with such formidable philosophical tendencies, and where individuals are ob so oblivious to facts and so possessed uh, uh, to such a high degree with a rage for abstractions. A rage for abstractions. So this is the little sting in the tail, right? The French love abstractions, but perhaps love it a little bit too much. And you see this, although it's a, it's, it's a kind of slightly, uh, um, uh, 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 there's a kind of little sting in the tail, I think there is something in this, in this way of thinking about uh, uh, the French approach, because this love of abstraction, you see it um, very much in uh, uh, dominant political traditions in France, like Gaulism, for example, in the 20th century. The opening page, the opening sentences of uh, General de Gaulle's uh, memoirs talks about him having une certaine idée de la France, a certain idea of what France should be. France is always in the eyes of uh, politicians, its politicians and its intellectuals, a certain idea. And I was very struck by something that the academician uh, Jean Dornesson recently said, and this is another quote. More than any nation, 
France is haunted by a yearning towards universality. So this theme of generality, of universality, of producing general systems um, is something that is very, very common uh, uh, and, and is very much part of a kind of long-standing tradition in French thought. Now, over time, um, and now I'm starting to kind of make the transition from talking about the kind of richness and the, the positive qualities of this way of thinking, making the transition to talking about some of its more negative aspects. Over time, it seems to me, this fetish for abstraction has produced uh, a lot of wonderful results. Um, but it's also produced some, um, some darker sides. It's produced some perversions. Uh, uh, it's produced some problematic <coughs> aspects in, in the way the French uh, uh, think about the world and think about social and political problems. And here I'll give you a kind of quick list of some of the problems that have emerged through this French penchant for abstraction. I think one problem is um, that the French um, have often been reluctant to, um, or, or have found it difficult to uh, theorize or to conceptualize the particular. Because it follows almost logically that if you see everything in kind of general terms, um, things that are specific, things that are particular, uh, things that don't fall into universal categories become difficult to conceptualize. And this was, of course, one of the big problems with the, with the revolutionaries themselves. Any group or any uh, uh, political movement that didn't necessarily subscribe to their view of the world mm -hmm. immediately got pushed out uh, uh, and treated as potentially dangerous or potentially damaging to the integrity of the republic. So, um, I mean, the brutal way of putting this is that the French, and I'm talking particularly about the Republican tradition now, the French Republican tradition has a problem, has a difficulty uh, with accommodating diversity, with, with recognizing diversity, uh, 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 with legitimizing diversity. You've seen it historically in a number of different ways. Um, recognizing that Catholicism, for example, could have a legitimate place in French society. Long, long history of problems with that. Um, recognizing that women should be uh, treated as equals in uh, a republican political community. France uh, only grants women the right to vote in 1940, after the Second World War, you know, long after even Britain, which is not exactly a kind of big model for um, pro progressive views in this area. But, you know, France, with its kind of revolutionary tradition, uh, uh, takes a very long time to kind of uh, uh, give women the vote. That's because women are perceived as not falling into um, the kind of republican notion of what it means to be uh, a virtuous citizen. And you have the same problem with colonial subjects um, as well, historically. So the republican tradition, the progressive tradition in France is very powerful because it has this universalistic tradition, but this universalistic tradition is also a tradition which uh, is problematic because it's a tradition which doesn't uh, find it easy to accommodate uh, diversity, to accommodate difference. And I think um, the uh, contemporary example of this, and this is what I want to spend a minute talking about, is... Uh, uh, the role of religion uh, and particularly the, the place of uh, Islam in contemporary French society. 
Um, so um, as a kind of illustration of um, how uh, difficult um, pro the progressive tradition has found it sometimes to kind of reconcile uh, universalist ideas with um, uh, uh, pluralism, the recognition of pluralism and diversity, let me talk a little bit about um, how the French have approached the whole question of um, the integration of post-colonial minorities, particularly from, from the Maghreb, from, from North Africa. Now, the roots of this problem seem to me to, to, to lie in the kind of deeply held assumption in France about the, the beneficial quality of French civilization for humankind. This is something that if you go back to the 19th century, you see it in in all the kind of pronouncements of the French Revolution. You see it in the Napoleonic conception of empire. You also see it in the writings of early socialists. One of the things that really struck me when I did the research for my book is if you read 19th century French socialists, I mean, there are one or two of them who are critics of the French colonial tradition, but actually most of them are, are sympathetic, right? Because they say France has a great civilization, um, you know, there are all these kind of blighted parts of the world that France is kind of reaching out to. So this is an opportunity for us to take our civilization to these, to these lesser peoples. And, and you, find, uh, you find it very much in, in the writings of 19th century Republicans. You, you see it also in the writings of French socialists and French Marxists even. Um, and, you know, here's an example. Here's Paul Lafargue, um, Marx's um, son-in-law and a very important French Marxist theoretician, of course, uh, as well, uh, saying, uh, and I quote, all socialists have two fatherlands, the place where they happen to be born, and France, their adopted fatherland. Right? So there's a kind of implicit hierarchy there. You know, the, the, the real patrie of every true socialist is, is France. Um, and I think this kind of colonialist legacy with its sort of inbuilt assumptions of French intellectual superiority, still casts a rather long shadow on the way uh, the French treat, France treats and perceives its, uh, its ethnic minority citizens, especially those originating from, from the Maghreb. And I've been very struck since the uh, 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 2015 jihadi attacks in, in Paris, how these minorities have been kind of put on the spot, it seems to me, by, uh, uh, particularly by the kind of conservative press in France, um, and, and really uh, asked to kind of prove their, their Frenchness, asked to kind of demonstrate that, uh, uh, that they are part of the French community. And I think the reason for that is because of the kind of typically abstract way in which um, the French think about, and including French progressives, think about the issue of minority integration. So if we take this kind of big concept in, in French political discourse today, which is laïcité, you know, which, which we loosely translate as secularism, it seems to me the concept or the principle of laïcité, again, a general principle, so very French, uh, the concept of laïcité has been deployed largely not to kind of protect the religious freedom of um, uh, uh, Muslim minorities, um, as you would expect if, if the principle was being applied in a kind of rigorous uh, way, it seems to me that it's been uh, deployed as a way of kind of controlling and monitoring 
the behavior of, um, of Muslim minorities. And indeed, anyone, anyone, whether Muslim or not, who's tried to kind of uh, uh, contest this kind of rather uh, 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 strong def- interpretation of, of laïcité has been labeled uh, a communitarian uh, or even a kind of uh, 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 someone who might sympathize with Islamism. And, and so it seems to me this way of thinking about the integration of minorities um, is very characteristic of the way the French have approached the, uh, the issue, uh, rejecting completely any notion of multiculturalism and saying that the only way in which people can integrate into French society is if they adopt uh, what are perceived to be uh, uh, the dominant republican values. So there doesn't seem to be any space, in other words, for the recognition of um, any kind of proper notion of cultural diversity within a framework like this. So this seems to me to be a rather good example of how the notion of diversity um, uh, is problematic in the French tradition, (coughs) including in the French progressive tradition, which is why I think laïcité is such a kind of problematic concept uh, at the moment. Now, the emergence of this rather closed and, you know, uh, rather abrasive version of laïcité uh, at the moment, over the past three decades, what uh, historians of, of, of laïcité call laïcité fermée, right? there's a distinction that is often made between a laïcité ouverte and a laïcité fermée. The open things. That, by the way, in French thought, things always have to be divided in two. So there's only two possibilities. Laïcité can either be ouverte or fermée. And at the moment, we're in a kind of phase of laïcité fermée. So hopefully, um, things may come back to the laïcité ouverte. But my point is, it's not a coincidence that uh, this, this rather closed notion of laïcité has, has risen to prominence uh, uh, over the past two decades or so. Um, because since the late 20th century, and now I'm making the transition to uh, discussing the present, it seems to me French thought has become increasingly inward-looking, um, uh, a crisis which manifests itself in the sense of disillusionment, the sense of pessimism that I talked about um, at the beginning of the lecture. And of course, as you all know, this, this, this negativity also manifests itself in politically in the rise of the Front National, which has become now one of the most dynamic political forces in contemporary France, and, and indeed a political force which, expre- which exercises a strange fascination even among certain left-wing intellectuals. Um, for example, the feminist philosopher Elisabeth Badinter paid tribute recently to Marine Le Pen for her resolute defense of laïcité. So you're finding some rather strange... Um, intellectual uh, overlaps and alliances between people on the left and people on the extreme right. And so, you know, writing in the review Le Débat in 2010, the historian Pierre Noir concluded rather despondently, and this is a quote, France has now become the land of shrinking horizons, the atomization of the life of the mind, and national provincialism. So not good. (laughs) Indeed, as I mentioned at the beginning, conservative ideas and thinkers are now um, dominant um, in, the realm, in the realm of ideas. Um, now, of course, I can anticipate what some of you or all of you, no doubt, are, are thinking. Well, it, this is not 
a, a, a kind of exclusively French story. And it's true that if we if we look at if we look across Europe, with one or two interesting recent exceptions, you know, um, we have uh, Syriza, Podemos, um, hey, the election of Jeremy Corbyn. You know, not quite sure where that's going to go, but you know. For, for a, for a brief moment, I was able to say to my French friends, Britain is going to be, play a leading role in the re- regeneration of the European <coughs> left, and maybe that will happen too. But so there have been some interesting, interesting uh, uh, exceptions to a general pattern. But I think the general pattern since the late 20th century is really one of a kind of rising tide of, uh, of conservatism uh, 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 across the development world. But I think this crisis of progressivism is especially acute in France. Um, it's especially acute for a number of reasons. I think the most important reason is, as I, as I, as I uh, uh, outlined at the beginning of my talk, progressivism has been the dominant intellectual tradition in France for at least, I would say, three centuries. So something really uh, striking is happening if, if this is no longer the case. So, so something that, that there appears to have been a rather big tectonic shift um, uh, uh, and a distinct one uh, in, in France. Um, and I think um, there's something um, important that's happening in France and, 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 and only in France because I think this, this conservative turn, this pessimistic turn, this turn towards more reactionary ideas is symptomatic of something bigger, and uh, uh, maybe we can discuss this uh, in the question and answer session. I, I won't have time to kind of develop this here, but it seems to me that it's also symptomatic of a crisis of the Republican tradition in France. The reason why there is this such pessimism now in France, why uh, the reason why these kind of optimistic horizons. Uh, this kind of emphasis on intellectual creativity and innovation is no longer there, is because the Republican tradition itself um, is increasingly in crisis. Uh, Its kind of key ideals, such as equality, such as fraternity, uh, uh, are no longer the ideals that are being uh, adopted by by intellectual and political elites. And indeed, some of its key ideals, like the nation or the ideal of laïcité, are being captured by groups that are not in themselves Republican. Um, and that's the real problem that we're facing now with the French Republican tradition. I mean, I think it's dramatic that if we... Uh, the, one of the most resolute defenders of laïcité in France is Marine Le Pen. I mean, what does that tell us? It tells us, obviously, that Marine Le Pen is a very crafty politician, but it also tells us that there's a really big problem with Republicanism. If if things have come to, uh, to such a state. So that's why I think it's worth spending just a little bit of time in the concluding part of this lecture trying to understand why there has been this conservative turn in France and um, trying to kind of see perhaps by the end of it whether there's any possibility of, of reversing it. So how is this transformation to be explained? How have we gone from a situation of intellectual hegemony of progressive ideas, which is what I described uh, in the beginning of the lecture, to this situation today where people like Alain Finkielkraut are entering the Académie Française and where the sorts of ideas that he's defending, which are ideas of a very closed, uh, defensive, uh, ethnically homogenous France, are the ideas that are being celebrated by everybody. 
So what's going on? I think, I think obviously there isn't a single factor that explains this. I think one of the reasons why uh, the French have become more pessimistic, why the French intellectual and political class have become more pessimistic, is that there has been a collective realization on the part of French political and intellectual elites that France is no longer a major international power. Um, and I think the parlous state of the European project, which was so decisively shaped uh, by French figures, you know, from Jean Monnet to Jacques Delors, bears witness to this relative decline. And I think this retrenchment, this kind of turning, turning, onto, uh, turning onto oneself, I think it can be dated from uh, quite a precise moment. It's when the French said no to the European Constitution in 2005. I think that was a really big uh, moment, politically and intellectually, because from that moment on, it's become very difficult for French intellectuals and French political leaders to say anything positive about Europe. Um, I mean, Euroscepticism is part of our DNA in this country, unfortunately, and so uh, one almost kind of expects uh, political leaders to be Eurosceptic. But the dominant tradition in France has not been Eurosceptic, but it is now. Um, and I think 2005 represents an important turning point in that respect. And I think what's also playing out here, and again, I won't have time to go into details, but I think... Uh, it is an important psychological factor, is there's been a sort of delayed reaction to decolonization in France. And uh, the, the shock of losing Algeria was something that the French didn't feel immediately, um, partly because de Gaulle turned up in, in the 1960s and said, France is a great country, and it doesn't matter that we lost Algeria. We're still a great nation. Um, <clears throat> we, in fact, we didn't lose the war in Algeria. Um, the war in Algeria never happened, more or less, is, is the version that de Gaulle told them. Uh, and de Gaulle was very clever, of course, because, you know, um, it, it's very important kind of psychologically to uh, uh, find ways of uh, uh, circumventing uh, these kind of difficult, difficult types of events. And so I think there's been a, a sort of delayed awakening or a delayed realization collectively that France um, uh, did not come out of empire in, this, uh, in the way that it would have liked to. And so both the Second World War and the exit from empire, which were really difficult periods for France, um, for about 30 or 40 years after those events, the French didn't talk about them at all. And then in the late 20th century, they started talking about them obsessively. So you've got the kind of grand déballage about Vichy, which is not a kind of great story, but, you know. Um, so that came out, and then the whole stuff about decolonization also started to be investigated by historians. So psychologically, I think that was uh, very problematic. So the Second World War and the end of empire became almost kind of heavy weights on uh, the collective consciousness of the French. In a way, of course, that they're not in this country. Um, you know, the Second World War and the end of empire don't play this kind of negative... They're not, they're not these kind of sores or they're not these kind of wounds that they are, it seems to me, in the French case. And that explains why, you know, Winston Churchill has this kind of robust place in the British collective imagination. He is 
the great hero who, who somehow represents the, <coughs> the, the reconciliation of these two things. He was, he was a big imperialist, but he somehow helped Britain to kind of win the war as well. And these two things are synchronic in the British case. The problem with the memory of the Second World War and the memory of empire in France is that they are not synchronic, and, and if anything, they are, they are extremely damaging. That's one <coughs> historical reason, I think, um, why the French have become more pessimistic. Um, there's also uh, an increasingly um, widespread feeling that French culture is, is itself in crisis. Uh, and I think um, when you read someone like Finkelkort, um, he spends, I would say, um, 50-60% of his time talking about how people don't speak French properly anymore, how the language uh, is going to seed, uh, how, uh, and, and the other part of that argument is also, of course, the, the, uh, uh, the import of English and the use of English and the increasing use of English language in, in France and in French. So uh, there's a whole kind of um, uh, reaction to what is perceived to be the kind of debasement of French culture, which has started, I would say, since the late 20th century, and which these new conservative thinkers really make quite a lot of political and intellectual capital out of. And it's not a coincidence that among the best-selling works of 2013 and 2014 are people like Finkelkort and, and a journalist called Eric Zemmour, um, who wrote a book called Le Suicide Français. So, you know, the title kind of says it all. You know, we're killing ourselves, basically, is, is, is the general theme. Um, and, and I can't leave this kind of morbid theme without mentioning, of course, the great Michel Houellebecq, you know, who is, alas, France's best writer at the moment. I mean, he is a fantastic writer, but he's also someone who has this uh, incredibly bleak vision of what France is and what, and what France has become as a nation. So um, this kind of sense of a kind of crisis of culture uh, is also a very important factor. Um, <clears throat> I think another, uh, and now I'm going to talk uh, uh, more about institutions, because I think it's, the reason for this crisis is not just uh, to do with history and to do with psychology. I think there are concrete um, structural reasons why this, uh, this pessimism has come about. I think um, another set of factors that we need to consider are to do with the way French political and intellectual elites are trained and recruited. Um, because for a long time, uh, and I would say for much of the modern era, um, the nation's republican and socialist leaders were trained or were grounded in what you might call a kind of meritocratic and humanist uh, uh, culture, which was typically provided by elite institutions like the École Normale Supérieure. Right, the École Normale is the great cocoon which produces um, all the great republican leaders of the 19th and, and 20th century. And it is really the kind of dominant uh, uh, institution for the production of French intellectual and political elite. So you have, you know, with Robin, we were just talking before, before the lecture of Jean Jaurès. Jaurès goes to the École Normale. Um, uh, Léon Blum is a product of the uh, uh, École Normale. Um, not just socialist politicians, but great republican politicians. Uh, Georges Pompidou, 
you know, Gaullist is, is a normalien. So there is, up to, I would say, the 1950s and 1960s, a particular kind of humanist uh, uh, political and intellectual elite which is produced by, by French universities. Um, since the 1960s, I think the French educational system has become much, much different. Uh, for one thing, it's become much, much more inegalitarian. And there was an OEC report very recently which showed that uh, 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 when you look at the social composition of the people who go into the Grande École, now only about 4%, I think, or 5% of the intakes of the Grande École are uh, boys and girls from working-class families. This is in the, la patrie of the French Revolution, right? We've now reached a stage where... Bourdieu wrote a very interesting book on this called La Noblesse d'Etat, where he kind of analyzed how um, um, basically the intellectual and political elite now is reproducing itself in France. That's, that's what's happened. So you're most likely to become, to go to a grande école in France if your father or your mother went to a grande école. Right? So the elites are now reproducing themselves, which means that France is no longer uh, uh, a meritocracy because... The, these elites are, are operating in these rather closed systems. And even worse, right, so it's not just that it's inegalitarian and no longer meritocratic, but instead of the elites that are produced by this humanist culture where you read philosophy and spend lots of time thinking about abstract generalities, the elites now come from um, places like X and the Ecole Nationale d'Administration where you're taught very differently where the kind of teaching that you get is much more technocratic. Now, I'm not bashing the technocrats um, as uh, people often do kind of comprehensively. I mean, I think there's a, there should be a place for that kind of learning in, in the production of elites. But when you look at the recent, let's take a kind of specific example, the leaders of the Socialist Party, you find really since the 1980s a kind of very clear trend towards... Uh, the production of technocratic elites among the socialists. So you've had um, prime ministers like Fabius, Roca, and Jospin who've been in our, and of course François Hollande uh, uh, went to the École Nationale d'Administration as well, as did Ségolène Royal, which is where we met, uh, 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 indeed. And so um, I think, and, and I think this kind of training has serious weaknesses. Uh, 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 it, 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 it tends to kind of uh, stifle creativity. It tends to encourage formalism. It tends to encourage rule following. Um, and in the end, it discourages precisely the kind of um, wide, uh, uh, broad horizons which were characteristic of the, of the French inter progressive intellectual tradition over the past uh, uh, two centuries. So I think there's a direct link between these, trans these transformations that we have seen in the um, nature of the French education system and the French higher education system and uh, the kind of elites that the French have produced. And this change is a relatively recent change, so it seems to me to fit very well uh, the argument that I'm making. Right? So as long as we had uh, a slightly more meritocratic uh, and uh, a university system in which the Ecole, the Ecole Normale Supérieure was dominant, 
you had one particular type of intellectual and political elite that was produced. Now that we've moved to this less meritocratic and more technocratic elite, um, the kind of intellectuals and the kind of politicians that you get are the ones that we're saddled with, and that's the difference. Um, now, um, that's not all, um, and uh, I know I should uh, end soon, so uh, this will be uh, my last point. I've, I think this ascendancy of um, technocratic values among French progressive elites is also reflective of um, a particular institutional crisis on the French left since the, since the collapse of communism. Now, France was distinctive um, for much of the 20th century in that the dominant party of the left um, was a communist party. Um, now, this had interesting intellectual consequences, um, not always positive ones, but I would argue that one of the things that kept French intellectuals on their toes for a long time was the fact that the dominant party on the left was a communist party. Um, it didn't always encourage easy relations with the communists. In fact, for a lot of the time, most of the kind of very creative French intellectuals were on the margins of the Communist Party or outside it even. If you take someone like Sartre or if you take someone like Foucault, he was only very briefly in the party. Bourdieu, I think the same thing. Um, but what I think was interesting, and Tony Judd makes this argument really well in his book, uh, Marxism and the French Left, the presence of a large dominant Communist Party shaped the way French intellectuals thought and made them... Uh, uh, think very carefully about issues of social justice, made them think carefully about issues of equality, made them think very carefully about issues that really mattered uh, uh, about progressive change. Um, and I think that's why, for, for, for as long as you had uh, a dominant communist party, you had also a very vibrant uh, 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 progressive intellectual community in France. And I think... Um, what's happened since the 1980s is that the socialists have become the dominant party of the left in France and the socialists just have not had that kind of relationship with the, with, with the French intelligentsia as a communist. They've completely cut their kind of links with the intelligentsia, so much so now that the socialist party doesn't really have a kind of proper, a proper uh, set of connections with the intellectual world. And I'm, and I'm very struck by this. I was invited by the, the Jean Jaurès Foundation, which is a kind of semi-private institution that has loo loose kind of connections with the Socialist Party, uh, to give a talk there last year. And they were lamenting the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the Socialist government, the Socialist presidency, the Socialist prime ministers just have no interest in the work that they do, uh, in the intellectual work that they do. Um, so um, the Socialist Party is only interested in, in governance. You know, when they're in power, uh, uh, all, all that they're interested in is uh, exercising power. And I think this is a further illustration of the importance of technocratic values, of technocracy. Um, and, uh, and I think it's had these very negative consequences on uh, 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 the capacity of the left in France to produce um, uh, uh, these interesting new general theories. So um, we're not in a kind of very good place, and to conclude it all, I will leave you with um, a rather pessimistic quote from the sociologist Bruno Latour, 
um, who's kind of reflecting on this, on the, the changing nature of um, intellectual life in France. I mean, the changing nature of intellectual life in, in the Western world in general, but particularly the changing nature of intellectual uh, life in France, and this is what Latour says. It has been a long time since intellectuals were in the vanguard. Indeed, it has been a long time since the very notion of the avant-garde, the proletariat, the artistic, has passed away. It's been pushed aside by other forces, moved to the rear guard, or maybe lumped with the baggage train. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, we've got a good chunk of time here for questions and discussion, so I'm going to start by taking people singly. Um, when I call you, could you just say who you are and where you're from so we know, please? The gentleman in the purple shirt at the back, just wait for the microphone if you don't mind. Hi, um, I'm Alejandro from, uh, from Mexico City, formerly a science school student, and I wanted to ask you, what do you think it's the role on internet in decentralizing and spreading uh, the word of internet, and the, the French philosophies, the French values? Thank you. In, in terms of decentralization, the internet. Thank you. You want me to answer? I think one so. By one? Well, okay. at the moment, Jim. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much for that question. I mean, I think what the Internet has done is to create um, a whole parallel arena in France in which um, some of the work that is, is produced and discussed in, in paper or print, print, print publications are, are further disseminated. But I think what it's also done is created a... a, a, a an arena within which people of a certain generation, particularly particularly younger people, um, have found ways of kind of connecting with the political world, uh, which are different from the ways in which uh, connections with the mainstream world take place. And so I think this is an area where um, some of the mainstream political parties are trying to kind of establish uh, establish themselves, not not kind of entirely successfully, I should say. Um, one of the most interesting things that I found when I was doing the research for my book is that you now have some intellectual figures who are very, very well known in the arena of, um, let's call it the virtual arena, but don't even bother to print any of their works in, in the press or, 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 in, uh, or in book form. For example, there's a man, um, I wonder how many of you here have even heard about him, a man called Alain Soral. S-O-R-A-L. Name ring any bells? Yeah. Okay, so Soral is, um, he, he has a website. Um, he, he's a very curious intellectual figure because he comes from the extreme left. Uh, he spent some time with the extreme right. Now he describes himself as somewhere in between. So <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of kind of potential there. Uh, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's eccentric, let's put it that way. Um, but what's, it, what's fascinating is that he, 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 de he delivers these kind of monologues, which he then tapes and, and puts online, and they're watched by uh, something like uh, 8 million people. Um, uh, and so th there's a whole world there of stuff happening, which most of us um, 
older people who work on pamphlets and books and uh, and and journals um, just have no. Well, I'm, I'm speaking mainly for my, myself, of course. We have no way into into that universe. Uh, and what friends of mine, French friends of mine, tell me is that Soral's overwhelming, uh, 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 what should I say, readership. Um, I mean, the community of people who interact with him are people who are under 20, largely. I mean, he, he exercises this kind of great fascination for them. So there is, there is potential there, right? But what's striking is that for the moment, none of the kind of mainstream figures, either in the political world or in the intellectual world, have been able to kind of repeat the sort of success that someone like Soral has achieved. Okay, um, can we have this uh, lady down the front, please? Hello, thank, thank you for coming. My name is Anaïs. I'm a French student here at LSE. I wanted to ask you how do you make sense of the recent manifestation of French pride, and I'm thinking about two cases in particular, the first one being the, the protest on the 11th of January following the Charlie Hebdo attacks, where people were um, protesting for French values such as freedom, etc., and the second case is um, uh, following yet another terrorist attack in November, um, Facebook kind of offered the feature to uh, make the French flag as your profile picture. And a lot of my friends, like the, the immense majority of them, um, did it. And not only French friends, like also from other parts of the world. So it's like it seems like there's some sort of French pride again, and is it just like remnants of old age, or is it, um, is it just because of like terrorist attacks that people react like that, or is it just re regeneration? I don't know. How do you make sense of it? <coughs> Thank you very much. And I, I mean, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating phenomenon, and and I think it probably can't can't be explained by just even one or two factors. I think a lot of different things are, are happening. Um, I think one, one thing that's kind of obviously happening is um, a sense of, I mean, there is a sense that France as a nation is under attack. And so when that sense is there, I think France is a country where there's a very strong and, and very rich tradition of patriotism. So when there is a sense that the nation is collectively under attack, um, I mean, even though the attacks happened only in Paris, in this case, I think the response uh, uh, was one that was uh, uh, that happened kind of in all parts of France, and one could see that particularly in in, in January, because of course there were there were uh, uh, people took to the streets. I think it was four million people took to the streets. One, one and a half million in Paris, but then the rest uh, across France. So there is this kind of general sense that the nation is under attack and we must all stand together. So I think part of the response, part of the kind of patriotic response is, uh, is of that kind. I think also, particularly with Charlie Hebdo, there was a sense that what was under attack wasn't just country, but um, the whole idea of freedom of expression. And so um, since culture and free expression is such an integral part of the French intellectual tradition, um, I think the, the, the reactions of the, of the kind that we have seen have also been reactions which have been reactions of defending 
and celebrating that tradition. And, and in both of these senses, I think um, it's obviously a good thing that, that the French have reacted in this way. Where I'm less comfortable, and this is the third area, I think, the third framework through which one can interpret what's been happening since, since January 2015, is in the whole um, attempt to bring everybody together to the same place. Uh, with, I think Je suis Charlie um, was a very clever uh, 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 slogan, but it was not a slogan that everybody agreed with. And there were a lot of people, particularly in the minority groups, who didn't feel, first of all, that they'd been consulted. You know, the slogan came up the day after, so it was kind of typically French in some respect because it was a, a, a collective slogan that was driven by the state, in effect. Right. It was a, a state-led response rather than a kind of collective response which took in everybody's views. And I think some of the feeling of discomfort uh, among the minorities was that they were being asked to identify with a publication which had vilified um, their profit. And they didn't, while, while they obviously didn't condone what had happened in, in Charlie Hebdo, they didn't feel, because you remember what I said, there only seemed to be two options in France. You know, you either, you're either with Charlie or, you know, if you're not with Charlie, that means you're, you're somehow against the Republic. Well, I think there were a lot of people who wanted to, to find a third way or a fourth way or a fifth way, and that option didn't seem to be available. And that's what I think is slightly difficult. And, and that's what connects with the whole thing I said about laïcité. I think the way the French have been talking about laïcité since January 2015 has been problematic in this respect because they're trying to bring everybody to this position of thinking the same thing. And I think that is not a healthy way to deal with uh, difficult issues, particularly difficult issues to do with religion. Okay, now we've got stacks of questions here. Um, I might start taking them in twos, if that's all right with you. Um, can I have um, the gentleman with the grey... Well, there's two gentlemen in grey. The grey hair and the grey shirt. Yep. <laughs> and then um, someone was over here. Yeah, this person in purple, please. Okay, thank you for that. I'm intrigued by the notion that Charles Sorry, de Gaulle... Sorry, could you just say who Sorry. you are? Yep. Um, Peter O'Kane. I'm from Belfast, Northern Ireland. I suppose I mean UK, probably. Um, right. I'm intrigued by the notion of Charles de Gaulle as an um, optimism comfort blanket for the French left, but I'll leave, a, I'll leave that to one side. More generally, I wonder whether you're alighting two particular trends together. One is pessimism, and the other is a shift in the, in the left-right balance of uh, um, opinion. I agree about pessimism. The data is very clear. French are becoming relatively more pessimistic rest to the, the rest of the world. I do not agree with your view on the left-right. If you, if you look at what's happening in, say, Scandinavia, you see exactly the same trend. In this country, you, and indeed in uh, America, you see exactly the same uh, trends in a non-meritocratic trend in education. And I think... The timescales are different in, in the UK, for instance, but you have a huge shift in the um, UK is not so interested in philosophy, more interested in um, um, accountancy. So it was when the economics changed in the UK in the 70s and to some extent the 80s that you had a big shift. Mm -hmm. And it may be that... So I think it's, it's in a different field, 
and the timescales are different and the speeds are different, but the direction is, if anything, less extreme in France in terms of the left-right shift than it has been in US and UK. Okay, thank you. Um, and this gentleman here, please. Hello, thank you for your talk. My name is uh, Justinien, so I'm from France, but I've been here for a few years now already. Um, and my question is, you ended your... I mean, you spoke a lot about intellectuals that are now in their 60s or, or, or 70s, like uh, Alain Fickelkraut, uh, who's... Um, um, <coughs> Yeah, joining the Académie Française, uh, André Glucksmann, who died um, in November, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a, two, two questions in one. First one is, how do you see... I don't see a younger generation of, of intellectuals taking the stage at all. It's very much 50-plus or even 60-plus years old white males uh, speaking in the media. And my second question is... How do you see the role of uh, academia in uh, in uh, in the public sh I mean, intellectual scenes uh, today in France? You ended up your talk by quoting Bruno Latour, who's probably the most quoted French academic uh, in the whole academic world today. But you ask anyone in France that probably nobody has ever heard of Bruno Latour or his theory. Um, he's not heard at all. So I don't know if it's he, uh, he, uh, if, he does, if he doesn't want to take part in the public debate or if he's not invited on, on television or, or, or newspapers. Mm. But that's twofold questions about generations and the second one about okay. the role of academia. So our two questions have turned into four questions. I think um, <laughs> perhaps feel free to be selective or at least concise. Thank you. Um, well, actually, um, on Peter's point, I, I, I broadly agree. I mean, I think that... Um, What's happening on the left-right issue is, is part of a, of a much wider, of a much wider <coughs> trend. Uh, I would just say this, though, that what seems to me to be characteristic of the French left over the past 30 years is the extent to which it's abandoned its core values in a way that you don't see, for example, in Scandinavia. You know, the Scandinavian social democrats still claim to be part of their heritage, and you don't have this kind of extraordinary thing that the French left has done really since Mitterrand onwards, which is to say that everything that we believed in, everything that we swore by, everything that we uh, 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 idolized, we're going to reject completely. Um, and, and this kind of fetish for triangulation, which is something that started here with, with Blairism, of course, but which the French have adopted um, avidly, um, is now finding finding expression um, uh, in, in a lot of the things that, that the Hollande administration is doing. And, 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 and the reason why I think this is relevant to a, to a talk about intellectual life is precisely that it seems to me the French left has stopped thinking in a way that other lefts are still trying to... Other lefts in Europe are still trying to, for example, think of a kind of critique of capitalism. But... In, in the French left, um, the only person who's tried to do this and, and has done it very successfully, which you, you mentioned Latour as someone who's uh, uh, very widely known outside France but not, not in France itself. The other person who's done something like this is Thomas Piketty, of course, but Piketty is exactly the same. Piketty, uh, ha his work has been uh, uh, greatly successful in the US uh, and in Europe. Uh, his own socialist government um, completely disagrees with him, and, and he has denounced them. 
So that's the kind of state that we're in with, with, with the French left at the moment. Um, on, on Justinien's questions, I mean, I think one can fold the answer because they're, they're really two sides of the same, of the same thing. The, the, the real rupture happened in, in the 1980s with the disappearance of the, the generation of, of Foucault, of Aron, uh, of that whole crowd, and the disappearance of, of people like Althusser. From that moment on, um, intellectuals retreated to some extent from, from the public sphere, and uh, academics became less willing to enter uh, the public domain. So what you see now are a lot of very interesting and distinguished scholars um, on more a, a sort of, say, British model, you know, people who do very interesting specialized work, but who don't think that because they do interesting specialized work, they have a legitimate right to intervene in, in public debate. And that's the situation now increasingly. You have a lot of very clever people in the Collège de France, for example, but it would not occur to them to publish a kind of op-ed in Le Monde about, you know, what France should do about the Syrian refugees, for example. Whereas a generation ago or two generations ago, every professor in the Collège de France would feel that that is what they should do. That's what's changed. Okay. Um, all sorts of hands all over the place. Um, can we start with this gentleman with the checkered shirt um, and then this woman over here with the black jacket? Yes, thank you very much. Um, my name is Joost. I'm a Dutch student here at LSE. Um, I noticed that you seem to equate uh, progressive intellectual thought with the French left, and I was wondering what that meant for the relationship between intellectual thought and the French right. So what does the UMP or Républicain uh, do with intellectualism? Does it have an intellectual wing, or does it simply not think as much about issues? <laughs> I don't know. I was quite curious what you had to say about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hello, uh, my name is Stephanie and I was once a student here. My question for you goes back to your discussion of innovation and the new. And it reminded me a lot of the language we hear and have heard for a while coming out of Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering about this idea of whether or not some of our most innovative thinkers today are no longer going into academia or even becoming intellectuals, but they're going into industry and technology and taking their ideas in ways that can be turned into products and monetized and that's where they're having value. That You don't have value anymore as an innovator to go to the Collège de France and write an article that's published in a journal behind a paywall that normal people can't read. You innovate by, by blogging, by doing podcasts, by creating apps that millions of people will pick up, or by creating a video that goes viral. So I, just, I wonder about that, and I wonder what the implications of that are for populist parties like Le Pen or people who can come up with, like Donald Trump, really clear messages, as offensive as they may be, they translate in, this, in these new forms a lot easier than something that's complicated and difficult to access. I'll just throw that out there. So you could help make our podcast go viral, depending on the answer to the question. Yes, absolutely. Um, on, on, on Joseph's point, um, I, th- I would say up to up to the late 20th century, there was quite a kind of distinct conservative tradition in France. I mean, always a minority, but, but quite a kind of vibrant one. Um, I mean, France, I mean, to take a kind of egregious example, uh, France has a very long tradition of, of royalism, 
which is kind of sometimes associated with um, extreme nationalism. So a lot of the stuff that you see someone like Marine Le Pen talking about today belongs to a tradition of kind of, you, you might call it a kind of exclu- exclusive nationalism. You find it in the Action Française in the 19th century. You find it in the writings of someone like Joseph de Mestre in, in the early Uh, in the late 18th and early 19th century. So there are conservative traditions in France, but they've always been relatively uh, minoritarian. Um, I think what's interesting in the second half of the 20th century is that you... And Gaulism is really um, important in this respect because um, uh, the French right realized that there's a kind of legitimacy issue with calling oneself right-wing in France. Um, You know, it doesn't work. So Gaulism says we're not right-wing, you know. Uh, we're above left and right. And, and that's been the kind of approach which uh, parties of the right have tried to adopt. They've tried to kind of create a kind of type of discourse in which they aspire to kind of transcend the left-right divide. But the party that did it most successfully were, were the Gaullists. The UMP tried for a while to do that, um, but they didn't succeed. And they don't really attract that many thinkers. Uh, Sarkozy, I was very struck, the most important personality that he was able to bring, bring to his re-election campaign in 2012 was Johnny Halliday. So it doesn't quite work. Um, on, on innovation and, and, and the relationship with business, um, I mean, I think, I think I'll say this about French culture in general, political culture in general. There still is, and, and this is a big contrast with both Britain and America, there still is a big resistance to um, the whole notion of materialism and material success. Uh, it's not just a kind of left, it's not just traditional left-wing anti-capitalism. Uh, Gaulism, to give you another example, was very, very vehemently opposed to the whole idea of a money-making society. And, and de Gaulle throughout his life described money, you know, that's what he said, l'argent was his biggest, uh, his biggest adversary. Uh, this is part, I think, of a kind of Catholic tradition that, that, that still expresses itself uh, in that way. Um, and, and, and that is often described by French entrepreneurs themselves as one of the kind of obstacles to uh, economic, uh, economic innovation in France. So there is a kind of cultural issue there that I think is interesting and distinctive. Okay. Um, can we um, have the distinguished gentleman... Hang on, now, this, this person here, and then after you, the person with the tie at the back. Okay. Um, uh, Rob, Robert Boyce, uh, LSE. Hi, Robert. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you aren't being just a little bit pessimistic. Um, what strikes me uh, about France is the, the amount of room which still exists for serious intellectual exchange. Now, it, it may be uh, depreciated, uh, devalued by being on television uh, to a large extent, but we don't have the equivalent of um, uh, uh, the uh, channel, the Sénat, uh, public channel. Which, which is devoted hour after hour after hour during the week. I imagine you've been on it, <laughs> um, uh, discussing serious issues and, and, and at considerable length. And there, there are a lot of public equivalents. And one does see people like Emmanuel Waugh, uh, 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 Olivier Todd, and so on, who are 
um, uh, giving expression to something which is not right-wing, which <coughs> is not particularly pessimistic, and is still very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. um, how do you fit that in, or, or do you not regard that as uh, part of the intellectual arena? Okay, and um, the person with the tie up the back, in the middle, yep. Uh, <coughs> Hi, I'm Nat, I'm a student from London. And I was just wondering, some of the factors that you describe as causing the pessimistic turn are also uh, present in Britain, maybe. So the loss of empire and the loss of world power is maybe even more abrupt and dramatic for Britain. And I was just wondering why they played more on the French national psyche than the British. Thank you. Now, since we're coming to the end, I'm just going to inject a question of my own. Um, can you try and put what you've said into a comparative context, and in particular to say something about the United States? Because some of the way you characterise the French progressive tradition is certainly true of the United States. I mean, the great sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset said it's not a country but an idea. And you see that sort of monumentalisation of ideas in the Jefferson Monument, in the Lincoln Monument, in the Rockefeller Centre and, and, and other places. So uh, is it true that there's no similar... Uh, presumism about the progressive tradition in the United States, or is it too suffering from this tradition? Is there a different progressive tradition there that is able to have some of these French characteristics? What does that comparison tell us about possible ways out or non-ways out of the pessimism you have characterised? Thank you very much. Yeah, no, that's a fascinating comparative, comparative question. Um, Robert, yes, I did deliberately exaggerate um, for the purposes of effect, of course, um, the presentation. Um, I mean, I think what... I guess what I was largely talking about were the intellectuals who capture most of the media attention. And that's what's interesting about these people, is that they're everywhere. I mean, if you're in France regularly, as I am, you find someone like Finkielkraut or Zemmour on the cover of, you know, the weekly magazines once a month. Um, and that's what's striking. So it's not that there isn't um, a lot of other intellectual activity happening or indeed a lot of other research happening in universities. It's partly that a lot of the other interesting stuff doesn't get, as, doesn't get reported as much. So it's about presentation. And it's also about the ability of these people, the, I'd say the almost kind of demonic ability of these people to capture the limelight, right? to, to attract attention to themselves. Um, which means that they have certain skills which, 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 which other intellectuals don't. But I think it's also about the point I was talking about earlier, which is the divorce between what happens in the academic world and what happens in the sphere of, of intellectual activity. So someone like Emmanuel Todd is, is an academic, and, 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 and he does serious research, and he doesn't want to come up with a kind of pamphlet that's going to say just two things in a kind of rather crude way. And, and sometimes that's what you need to do mm -hmm. to kind of sell 500,000 books, right? You need to come out with a kind of very big thesis. And, and the one time that Emmanuel Todd did that, which was after the, 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 the Charlie uh, demonstrations, everybody hammered him and they said that he was being crude and mischaracterized the nature of, of what had happened. So... <clears throat> there is an issue there about who gets to occupy the limelight. And, and, I, and I think that's really what I was talking about, rather than saying that there isn't this kind of wider level of intellectual activity going on. Um, uh, but there is a kind of hierarchy 
in terms of who uh, is now occupying center stage uh, and where the others uh, are at. And I think it's partly to do with this divorce between the intellectual world um, and the academic world. Um, on, on, on the comparison with Britain, I mean, I think... I mean, if I stick to the left, I mean, I think the big difference, and in a way that's also the answer, uh, uh, or at least an, an important element of the answer when it comes to America. The really big contrast between France on the one hand and America and Britain on the other is that the left in France is dominated for much of the modern period by Marxist thought and by the presence of a very large communist party. And once you have that difference a lot of other things follow. It means, for example, that the left has to think much more about class politics, for example. So class politics is really what a lot of French intellectuals spend a lot of time uh, talking about. Um, and I think also it explains the kind of other French intellectual obsession or, or the, the, the other obsession of French intellectuals, which I didn't have time to discuss here, but which I think is really an important feature of modern French thought, which is the obsession with analyzing, deconstructing, uh, making sense of power. Power is a kind of really big uh, uh, analytical concept for uh, French uh, uh, progressive philosophers. And, and, you know, the most recent example of that is Foucault. I mean, his whole work is about trying to kind of make sense of power. And you don't find a similar kind of obsession about power in uh, uh, on, on in the kind of Anglo-American Anglo left, I would say. But, but that's more a kind of intellectual answer. On the politics, um, I think one would have to perhaps spend another hour. Well, listen, thank you very, very much for that. Um, I, I want to make a few closing remarks, but before I do, I just want to remind you that um, Sadir's book is, is available for purchase outside, and, and he will stay here if you would like to get a signed copy. Um, so feel free to come back and, and get it signed. Um, look, I think you've dealt with some things that are absolutely central to the theme that we're trying to think about in our series here this year. Um, you've characterised the progressive tradition in France. You've, you've discussed some of the perverse or darker sides, as you describe them, and also tried to set out how that expresses itself in the present. And then, finally, you've turned to trying to explain uh, why that is so always a central question for social scientists like us here at the London School of Economics. So can you join me in thanking our speaker, Dr.